Hello, friends. I want to tell you about Diaspora Co., the company that is building a better spice trade. If you don't know Diaspora Co., let me tell you all about it. You want to know how are they building a better spice trade? Well, first and foremost, they're paying farmers four times the commodity price and three times the fair trade price. And these are not just transactional relationships. These are long-term relationships that they've been building year after year after year that touches over 200 regenerative farms and most importantly, 1,500 farm workers. These are actually some of the very best spices that you can buy on the market. The freshness and potency are unmatched. So if you're thinking right now about how you've had the same dusty spices in your cabinet for two years, head to diasporaco.com and bring home a world of flavor. Free shipping on orders of $70 or more. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest is one of my favorite poets and cultural commentators on Earth, Hanif Abdurraqib. What a pleasure it was for me to be able to check in with Hanif just a couple days before the announcement that he had just been hired by The New Yorker as a staff writer. Shout out to you again, Hanif. Hanif is the author of many books, but notably for me, one of my favorite book of poems, The Crowning Worth Much, and also one of my favorite book of essays, They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us. The man is brilliant and an ambidextrous conversationalist, so no surprise that our talk mirrors that fact. We talk notably about the qualities of a perfect chocolate chip cookie, crispy on the edges, soft in the center. We talk about Twitter. We talk about hoops. We talk about a bunch. Really, really had so much fun talking to one of my favorite public intellectuals, Hanif Abdurraqib. Brother Hanif, home for you is Columbus, Ohio. I feel like I know you through your work and reading you over these years. But when I think about Columbus, I actually think about you, bro. <laughs> for real. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, no, you really like have put on. So would love to talk to you about home as a notion, like as a physical place and just growing up in Columbus and why it means so much to you to like put on for Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. One thing is that I never dreamed of leaving here. I never wanted to leave here. And so, you know, I think there's this idea that if you are to quote unquote make it, whatever making it encompasses for particularly Black folks anywhere, then that idea of making it has to be accompanied with some kind of exodus from the place that kind of molded you into the kind of person who could make it. For me, Columbus is, it's good for me to be in a place where I'm, there's a type of tenured affection for not just my work, but for me as a human. That kind of tenure allows for a nuanced kind of affection where people are proud of me here, but they're not really impressed by me. Mm. Which to me, that, that's a real kind of love. And people aren't particularly reading my work and then shaping their ideas about me based off of what they've read. I kind of crave those kind of interactions with people who, who know me and who care about me beyond what I produce. That propels my work, knowing that 
if I were to get to a point where I did not want to write anymore, I could not write anymore, to the people here in this city, many of them, we would still be neighbors. We would still be friends. We would still be able to kind of be the people we were even before anything of mine got published. Yeah, man, that's beautiful. And that makes a lot of sense. The term tenured affection is really resonant. I I feel you on that. Let's talk about the reason that they are proud of you, which is your work. Recently, it was announced you got hired by The New Yorker as a staff writer. So congratulations to you you for that. What was that process like for you kind of being courted by The New Yorker? So this is the first year in since maybe 2015 where I'm not working on a book or releasing a book. Since 2017, I have not had a single home for my work or my ideas. And I kind of craved that this year. I thought, you know, I want to take one year and write like one piece a month, maybe two pieces a month, probably one, unless something excites me. That's kind of it. You know, I just want to say like, here's 4,000 words. I wrote about a thing that excited me this month. and. I was talking to my agent the end of last year. And I was like, well, I don't think anyone would let me do that. Media places now, the budgets are a lot tighter. But I did remember that David Remnick, editor-in-chief of New Yorker, had emailed me. We talked on the phone and, you know, way back, like late 2021, maybe. He was always like, you know, stay in touch if you got any ideas. And just offhandedly, I told my agent, like, oh, I think David Remnick emailed me back in, you know, January, February. And she was like, you didn't email them back. And I was like, I wasn't really locked in like that. I just thought this was a, a person in New Yorker I was talking to a bit. And so I kind of just emailed them back. <laughs> I didn't I didn't do the thing where I bought back up the old email thread. I like had some shame, you know, I was like, I'm gonna yeah. send them a normal new yeah. email. It was just kind of like, my man, you know, this is what I'm thinking. And it was near Christmas too, I think. Yeah, you know, I was like, if you got a minute, you'll give me a call. And fam called me like within the hour. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and we linked up the next day and that's kind of how it happened. But obviously there's a real privilege in being able to to say, like, this is what I want to do for this year and have someone afford you that opportunity. And who knows? I mean, maybe after this year I'll keep working at that pace, but I also know I have a book coming next year and I'm gonna have to be on the road more next year. And Anytime I do something, I want to do it to the best of my ability. And I want to pursue my obsessions and excitements to the ends of the earth. And I can't always do that if I'm on a plane every few days. No doubt. So yeah, casually had kept David Remnick on red (laughs) and then told your agent. And that's how that happened. So if y'all are following along at home, assume that's not going to be your path to the New Yorker. When I think of your work, and you've mentioned it a couple times, you are a prolific writer. Like the book of essays, They Can't Kill Us, They Kill Us, which was amazing. That actually introduced me to your work. But I feel like since then, it's like one a year. And I'm in the process of writing my first book. It has been a humbling experience. And so I would love to know, just like as a writer, about the process of a prolific writer? Like, how do you actually get the work done? Well, I mean, there are two things, I think. So my first book was a book of poems that came out in 2016. But I also came to writing significantly later than most of my peers. I have no quote-unquote formal education in writing. I didn't study writing in college or whatever. I just wasn't very good at school. But I always had these obsessions and interests and excitements, particularly around music. And for me, that meant that for a long time, because I wasn't a writer, 
those things are just kind of building and I would store them. I kind of have an internal archive of excitements. I did not always have access to a place for them. I had a blog, you know, a music blog coming up in the blog era that only like 12 to 20 people read. But those people really cared about what I had to say. And so it taught me to hone my voice for that size of an audience with the expectation that if this could be the audience here, if this many people could be excited about hearing about music in this way, which was a really collaborative, collective way, we would talk to each other in the comment section, that kind of stuff. Then taking this approach of experiencing music as a communal act and trying to project that into my own writing, that could carry me somewhere. But in terms of the work itself, I sit on and I I constantly sit on a lot of ideas. And so what that means for me is that I have to be disciplined and kind of thoughtful. I'm very lazy. You know, I think there are multiple kind of people in the world. There are people who are hardworking and disciplined. There are people who are hardworking, but pretty undisciplined. And so there's maybe like a scattershot way that their work appears in the world. And me, I'm pretty lazy, but I'm very disciplined. Perhaps more disciplined, I would guarantee, than than anyone you know. Walk me through that dichotomy. How can somebody be both disciplined yeah. and lazy? I would love to be both. <laughs> so please well, teach me the point. They act in opposition to each other, right? So the laziness is kind of inherent, which means that I know that left to my own devices, I would do nothing. I would prefer to do nothing. And I don't mean nothing in the sense of like replying to an email, nothing. I mean, literally not getting out of bed, nothing. You know, I was an athlete. You know, I played basketball, I played soccer in college. And so I had to learn a type of discipline because my love for what I was doing propelled me towards that discipline. Susan Laurie Parks, the playwright who I adore, says this thing about how discipline is simply a love for your big self. And that's kind of the path that I follow because I'm driven to get the things I'm excited about out of my head because I don't know how good they do me, just me in the world, if they are only in my head. And that isn't saying that everyone needs to see them. It just means that there has to be some kind of extraction process that fuels and excites me. And writing does that. Writing about music specifically does that. And so I can be in opposition to my inherent laziness and build a discipline around not even the work of writing, but the work of joyful extraction. And to present it like that and to put it like that offers me a better runway to it. And I cannot stay in bed because I would much rather be in pursuit of some revelation that might arrive to me in the process of doing this work. So that's how I act in opposition to my own laziness. Yeah, no, I hear that. So as far as the distribution of your work, I actually first came to it on (laughs) Twitter.com. I'm sure a lot of people have met you there. You've been an active user there. I don't even know how long, like, very long time, probably over a decade. Yeah, at this point, I think it's over a decade, which is unfortunate in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it has all of our timestamps on there. So yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, you're a critical mind, a thinker. Since it's been acquired by Apartheid Clyde <laughs> at a ridiculous number, it's not just an embarrassment. The actual experience has been degraded in a bunch of different ways. At minimum, we can all agree on that. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, what your relationship is to Twitter now as someone who has been on the platform, had relationships and opportunities, but 
seeing this like peculiar degraded phase that it's in right now? Well, definitely the experience is different and more challenging in many ways. But I'm kind of cynical about Twitter in that I think that for several years, its main propulsive ingredient has been, maybe this is unkind, but I think it's been both propelled by expressions of cruelty and the ability to witness cruelty Mm -hmm. and to take that witnessing of cruelty and present it as entertainment. Now, that has been ratcheted up, I think, in the recent months, of course, as well as just the user experience of the site has changed. But I do think the site's propulsive force has been a type of cruelty that concerns me broadly. The challenges I have with it now, and I think it's maybe always been this way or it's been this way for a long time and I'm just getting older, um, is you know plainly the way I think people talk to each other. It is a cruelty-first conversational approach. And so what I found is that I've had to really adjust what I talk about on there and why. And as that kind of container of things narrows and narrows and narrows, for me personally, there's going to come a point where it's like, okay, well, now I'm out because this container is so narrow. I think being witness to cruelty begets cruelty. It makes me, by extension, more guarded, more cruel, less open with others, or at least it presents an expectation of cruelty that there will be cruelty that will arrive to me because this is how the world is. A writer who meant the world to me, who I looked up to a great deal, was the late, great Greg Tate. And one thing you could say about Greg Tate is always that he was more interested in you than you could ever be in him. And I think if there's any legacy I'd like to carry on, it's that. And circle back to Twitter. I think it's been hard for me to be there and take a genuine, joyful interest in others because so much of what is performed on that platform is kind of about turning towards mundane and and small pleasures. It kind of thrill me. People sharing these like mundane excitements and being met with hostility. And that's that's hard for me, I think, to be witness to. All right. Let's talk about, I guess, what ostensibly the show is about. You know, I'm a food person. That's my background. But I kind of feel like, and I don't know this about you, but in my mind, I think of you as a food person too. Yeah. You know, you're kind of an experiential guy. You're very open-minded. I know you stand in line for ice cream. <laughs> you know, you have ice cream flavors that you look forward to. You've written beautifully about. So what is your relationship to food? Yeah, my relationship to food is pretty fascinating. It's wild, but I actually don't eat ice cream that much anymore. A wild thing about my life now I get sent ice cream sometimes, which I'm very grateful for. Columbus, Ohio is where Jenny's is, Jenny's ice cream. And so they they send me flavors. Columbus is actually the home of, I think, a lot of great frozen treats. We have Graders, which is based in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then Johnson's ice cream, which is ice cream I grew up with on the east side of Columbus. And my favorite is United Dairy Farmers, which you got to come to Columbus. You've never been, right? No, I haven't. You got to come through. I'll take you to UDF. UDF is like a, yeah. it's like a gas station, convenience store, ice cream parlor, all in one. You can go there at all hours and get an ice cream. Like if I were to say, be on a date with someone who's not familiar with Columbus, it got late. You know, if it's like past 11 or midnight or whatever, I'd be like, well, we got to go to UDF because I like seeing the sense of wonder that <laughs> that comes over people when they're like, well, this is a gas station out here and then a convenience store over there. And the ice cream, to be clear, is very good. And so I'm a food person who is, I never baked anything before the pandemic began. And then I started baking. 
And I really loved taking on baking because I failed. You know, it was good to have something I would fail at and then see the instant results of me getting better at it. You know, like I tried to make a German chocolate cake once and it didn't come out well. And then just through the process of making it, I said, okay, well, I messed up here, here, and here. Let me adjust that and then see how it comes out. So cooking, I think, is a little more generous because in the process of failing, you can kind of maneuver yourself back to safety. Yeah. You know? Yeah. (laughs) Baking is kind of like, there's a point of no return. <laughs> That's correct. So you feel kind of more aligned as a baker. Is that more in keeping with your own sensibilities and temperament in the kitchen? Is less improvisation, more kind of rigor and focus? Yeah, I think what's tough and something I'm really trying to work on in my own head, and I'm sure this has to do with my athletic background, is that I'm still kind of trained to believe the harder something is, the more rewarding the finished product is. Oh, yeah. Don't put your hands on your knees after running wind sprints. Yeah, 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 that kind of thing, right? Yeah. It's one of those things where I just think rigor is important. And so when I see these recipes for cooking that would be really good for me, like here's a 15-minute pasta, which is great. My impulse is to say, no, 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 I don't want that. I want the like four-hour cake. You want to make the noodles by hand. By hand, yeah, yeah. Some of that is because I saw my mother if we had like homemade pizza when I was a kid, she would make the dough. And I got to be witness to her making the dough. I think cooking is a much more expansive ground to experiment. And I don't trust myself to experiment with cooking. I trust other people to. <laughs> I sit at the altar of experimental chefs all the time. I would rather be at the mercy of someone else's experimentation because I think I can find something miraculous in, in the experimentation of anyone I love. Yeah. Do you have a new thing that has supplanted that, whether like a sweet treat or something that feels like a little more definitive for your culinary palate today? (laughs) My palate has changed. I mean, you know, part of this is because like in 2020, I hit a point where I was like, I'm just like not eating vegetables. And so I started eating more vegetables and that became me eating a lot of vegetables. That's great. And when that happened, and I'm to be clear, I'm not like the healthiest. I'm not like a portrait of health. But I eat a lot more vegetables and then my palate changed really quickly and it made things that were appealing slightly less appealing, which I didn't know it could happen that fast. And so there are some times that ice cream is just generally unappealing to me, but I do still love a sweet thing. But now it's it's kind of like simply defined sweet things. I just love a really good chocolate chip cookie with maybe some like sea salt. You know what I mean? Heavy flakes, big flakes. Heavy flakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really love a moderately sized, but really well-made piece of cake without too much icing. And you know what else? I don't know if you have this experience, but I love cinnamon rolls. Like I really like a cinnamon roll. But the other problem with cinnamon rolls, all the ones you can get are too big. They're way too big. Way too big. Dry too. And dry. As far as the chocolate chip cookie, because I love a chocolate chip cookie. I think it's actually superior. Cookie is the benchmark to judge any bakery. What is your definition of perfection when it comes to chocolate chip cookies? Okay, I have a good answer for this. One, heavy flaked on the sea salt. I like larger chips. I would rather larger chips, like evenly distributed, as opposed to like an over-chipped chocolate chip cookie. Can't be too chippy. Can't be too chippy. I like a soft cookie, but with a circumference that is a bit crispy, like the outside circle. And not even crispy, like hard, like Chips Ahoy type crispy, but crispiness that that gives way to softness, that lets you know softness is arriving. Much like, you know, it should be like 
falling in love, that point where you are on perhaps like date number two or three with the person and you realize it's going somewhere good. You've gotten around the hard edges of awkwardness and discomfort and you now are veering directly into the potential for abundant softness. Yes. That is also what a chocolate chip cookie should be, I think. The edges should be crisp but not offensive or harsh. Crisp enough to let you know that something good is coming. There's a line in the poem I love, at the end of my suffering, there was a door. And I feel like that is, you know, I like a chocolate chip cookie that's crisp enough to to make you suffer a little bit for what's coming. Yes. You just workshopped a poem at minimum <laughs> with that descriptor. And I have to agree with you. I really think distribution of the chips is important. We talked about the big flakes. I hear you on that. The crispy, but not hard edges that move into a soft core. I like that. And also as a wine person, right? I was trained to, all the food has to go with the right beverage, right? So it's like drinking and eating is really one thing. There's no hierarchy. So a chocolate chip cookie is really a conversation to me about coffee. It's coffee time. I really think about it as the perfect sweet and salty counterpoint to like a bitter cup of coffee. Yeah. So that's kind of like my my relationship to it. In my new book, I talk about the difference between the very thin difference between enjoying food and enjoying a meal. Using my father as kind of the blueprint for this as someone, my father is bald and when he really gets into loving food, his his head starts to sweat, right? Oh yeah, same for my daddy. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of how it is, you know? And yeah. When I was a kid, I used to watch my father prepare to eat. And he was a man who who just really enjoyed the process of a meal. Yeah. You know, he enjoyed getting his plate in order. He enjoyed kind of turning the plate towards the thing he wanted to enjoy first, that kind of stuff. So he enjoyed the before and after and not just the consumption. And I think there's something about that has stuck with me in terms of, particularly in terms of fruit. I enjoy slowly peeling a fruit. You know, I love peeling an orange or a clementine and just like revealing what's underneath that I can consume, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, I hear you on that completely. Can I ask you one question about food real quick? Of course. So do you like pancakes? Oh my God. I love pancakes. Okay. I am someone who for some reason only enjoys the center of a pancake. And so when I eat pancakes, I tend to just eat a horrific kind of circle in the middle. Yeah. And the edges are left behind. Is there a pancake you've had in the world that might be good for someone like me who is averse to the edges of a pancake? But much like the cookie, okay. I, I find the edges. Yeah, I was you. You beat me to it. I was like, "There's a bigger thesis here." <laughs> I think with the, the preferences, which is you don't really care for the edges. Yeah, I like to get to the softness as quickly as possible. So this is also giving the Seinfeld top of the muffin episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know why this is coming to mind, but I'm imagining like a circular mold. Oh yeah. Right where you could just basically have your pancakes and then shove like the mold right in the center, remove all the edges. And then you would just have this beautiful, fluffy center only of pancakes. You should try that. You want Japanese pancakes. Japanese pancakes? Yeah. They're very thick. Yes. I'm going to save that in my, oh yeah, look at that. Thanks for that addition, Celine. They're more like souffle-esque. I think yeah. they got a little more rise. They have a smaller circumference. Wow. I'm looking at photos right now. These are, I have to find these. Yeah. 
Actually, I need to look at it. <laughs> Thanks for that intel. File that under news you can use. The last thing I want to ask you about is you've mentioned a couple times that you were a hooper, you played soccer in college. So talk to me about your hoop game. I was a hooper too. I'm curious, what was your hoop game like growing up as a player, as a hooper, but also who were you tracking and rooting for as a young hooper? Wait, do you still play? I'm retired, bro. I'm scared. (laughs) I'm really scared. I want to play. I haven't played in years. And I I feel like every day that goes by, it's going to be harder for me to come back into the league. (laughs) Are you a tall person, though? Yeah, I'm tall. I'm 6'4". I thought so. Like watching the show, I was like, I think he's like very tall. So I'm like 5'7". And so... (laughs) Okay, yeah. I mean, hey, I'm from Atlanta, baby. That's Spud Webb. That's one of my main guys. (laughs) One of my main guys. So obviously, you, you were a point guard. You were running point. Yeah, I play point guard. I still play occasionally now, but back then and now, it's very much a pass-first point guard because I can't really create my own shot. Now, when open, I'm a streaky shooter, but when open, I'm one of those shooters where if I make two in a row, I'm going to make three. And if I make three, I'm going to then, like, you got to really guard me. A heat check guy. Yeah, yeah. The inverse of that, though, is if, if I miss three, then I'm off all day. Because you're in your head about it, or are you just like... Like, do you get in your head or are you just... Not really. It's just like a rhythm thing. You know, I'm really a big rhythm shooter. But one thing, I'm pretty dangerous above the foul line. I have a really good floater because of my height, like playing against taller players always. Lethal shot. I had to like perfect the floater because what I learned playing point guard was like the real way to put pressure on the defense, obviously, is getting into that no man's land in the lane where it's like, is he going to shoot or is he going to pass? Right. And so getting a deadly floater helped me because you know, the post players that start to push up on me and then you could cut underneath and throw a bounce pass to a cutter. So that was the game I had, but I grew up loving small players. I loved Gary Payton. I loved Allen Iverson. I'm a Minnesota Timberwolves fan. So I came to loving basketball through loving Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett was actually my first favorite player. Man, I was about to say KG was one of my guys. When he was in Minnesota. It's my guy. Starberry era. Yeah. Oh man, great team. It was a dream, you know, like, in my new book, which is kind of about basketball, I write about the Fab Five, Michigan, and I, I love them. I was very young when they were kind of storming onto the scene, but because they were just right up in Michigan, their games were on TV all the time. Yeah, yeah. It was the first time I saw these like brash black kids just like talking shit and that defined. I feel like they raised us. Yeah, yeah. For real. I feel like Jalen Rose is like a relative of mine. At this point, yeah, he's pretty much like an uncle or cousin or something. <laughs> you know? It was good for me to grow up and have a player, even like Allen Iverson, who was just small and effective, and to have a game that I could model after someone who was smaller than most other people on the court, but still good. Anifa Durab-Keeb, what should you promote? I mean, we know like you're in The New Yorker now. Every, you're so online. We know where to find you. What should people be tracking from you? I guess one thing I'm very proud of is the website 6805, which I invented in 2020. And it's not necessarily my work, like the website is my work, but the highlight of the website is that like every week I publish an essay from a writer about one album that that changed their life that came out between 1968 and 2005. Mm. I'm thinking about it today because I just accepted like 35 new pitches. And so we got a run of 35 essays coming to carry us to the end of the year. And 
yeah, 6805.com. There's playlists on there. There's like cool photos. I know that I'm supposed to be promoting my work, but you know, people know my work. People can find my work all over the place. Yeah, that is dope. Thank you so much, bro. Appreciate you. Thanks very much to our executive producer, Celine Glazier, engineer, Max Kotelchek, audio editor, Bethany Sands, video editor, Ilgen Kordogon, and associate producer, Quentin LeBeau. Very special thank you to our composer, Catherine Yang, for all of the music heard throughout this episode, and cover art from the homie Alex Bowman. Thank you, Alex. You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media or online at whetstonemedia.com.